Hello and welcome to Beijing to Britain. This is the place where we talk all things UK China. I'm Sam Hogg, and I'm Stephen Lynch. Right, let's get into things. I'm、uh, especially excited for today's podcast because we we get to speak to someone else called Sam, and the, the novelty of two Sams for the price of one is is one. The better、I'm. Sam. The better Sam. Do you know what? Again, as I said to you earlier on, Steve, not the first I've heard that, and unfortunately. <laughs> Well, not even the last time as well. But yeah, I'm very excited for that. And we have a we have a really packed schedule today. We're talking about、uh, WTO. We're talking about Chinese FDI. We're talking about a diplomacy tracker. We're going to have a conversation with Sam Goodman from the China Strategic Risk Institute, and then we'll finish off by concluding our views on the discussion with Sam. Steve, what do you think about that? Sounds good.、Um, I've got a quote for you here.、Uh, quiz question:、uh, Who is it from?、Mm-hmm. It's better to have your enemies inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent pissing in. Now, sorry for the crude language on this podcast, but who 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 coined that phrase?、Um, Steve, if you had told me beforehand, I would have tried to guess <laughs> along the lines of someone like a particularly roguish Henry Kissinger quote, perhaps. But I, I know it's not. Who is it? So it's Lyndon Johnson,、um, and I think that's a perfect way of framing our WTO World Trade Organization conversation when it comes to China. So there was obviously twenty odd years ago when Bill Clinton essentially argued that China should be involved in the WTO for that exact kind of reason. It's better to have them involved than outside.、Um, but twenty odd years later, there seems to be quite big challenges to. To China being involved in the WTO specifically from America, and it's sort of come to head now. So, just wondering if you can kind of give us an update about what's happened and sort of maybe what's China's stance, and certainly what the US have said. Of course, yeah. So, I think、um, this is actually a big week for trade type rhetoric in the UK government. We've got、uh, Trade Secretary Kemi Badenoch. Uh, having got into a, a couple of fights over the last couple of weeks here in the UK, she's out in the UAE right now for a WTO ministerial meeting, and she's basically bigging up free trade, which has come under the cosh both in the UK and、uh, in, in the West a lot recently. And、uh, on the flip side of that, we also have our Home Secretary, who is quite bizarrely in the US talking about trade as well. But the pitch for him is that trade actually is one of the ways by working. To- Together with developing countries, you can help reduce migration through trade, good trade. But I, I think before I come onto the sort of、um, the, the China side to this, there's a really interesting, quite existential, I would actually argue, discussion taking place in political establishments in, in Westminster and、uh, across the, across the pond about free trade. You know, has free trade worked for us?、Um, has free trade worked for regions? Has it worked for the average person? Uh, and has it, or, or has it basically made、uh, the elite class in, in various countries rich? Now, those are questions that you'll see a number of sort of parties and, and governments thinking about in the coming months. But why that matters to the WTO stuff is, as you've rightly pointed out, there one of the criticisms、uh, that that China has had leveraged against it or, or levied against it for the last couple of decades actually is that it abuses WTO practices,、uh, World Trade Organization practices, and it hasn't. Performed in a way that it should as a WTO member.、Um, you see that 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 sort of accusation is not without、uh, merit at all, as you all know better than I do from your time in China and seeing how the market practices work out there. But it's also very commonly seen in、uh, political speeches and often in the minds of some China hawks、uh, here in the UK. Allowing China into the WTO was the height of China ignorance because for them, they say it was part of this narrative that. It would help democratize、uh, China, 
and there's an argument and you know I was how old was I 10 years old at the time so not really in a view to give a position but there was a, a clearly in their view a prevailing argument that we let China in into the tent to use your metaphor and instead of pissing on us from outside with bad trade practices etc cetera, etc cetera, we'll be inside pissing out the way together and that clearly hasn't materialized in a way that that uh, certain parties hoped it would but you know to flip back to you Steve what, what what's your sort of view on having lived in China for over a decade and having, I mean, during that time, that must have been when they were a WTO member and beginning to quote unquote liberalize, not politically, but in terms of their trade practices. What, what's your sort of view of that? So I think it has moved China and it hasn't in regards to China has not stood still. It has opened up, it has reformed, and that's a very different place. China's in a very different place to where it was 20 odd years ago when it came into the WTO. And it has liberalized and it has opened up markets, maybe not to the extent that the global West was hoping or was planning to do so. It's very easy looking back in hindsight to say, oh, we shouldn't have let them in. But again, at the time, it was a real existential question. Do we let China in and we think we can reform them and essentially move them towards a more capitalist um economy Mm. or do we keep them outside and we don't really know where they go and so the idea was we bring them in and and they they reform now china from the very outset was quite clear in regards to china's for china and we always thought no we're going to reform them through this capitalist model but they did embrace capitalism but in their very own socialist way and i think that's the the major challenge that no one has ever reformed in the way that China has in such a short period of time. So they absolutely haven't stood still. They have completely revolutionized their market in 20 odd years, 20, 30 odd years. And WTO was absolutely the catalyst for it. But it hasn't reformed in the way that the global West wanted or planned. Mm. And I think that is the big challenge. And you're right, you know, they they have breached several violations of, of WTO and America has called them out on it. But also from a China perspective, they see it as a distortion of facts. So I, I would say from sitting in the market, you could you could see the change. Mm. I mean, this maybe brings us on to our next conversation around foreign direct investment. The reform of the market hasn't been in the way that the global West was hoping. So I think I think to bridge that then, um, let's talk about FDI, foreign direct investment, because I know you've been, well, I've seen a number of messages you've been pinging me over the last couple of days talking about FDI. So to, can you give us a sort of overview as to what's changed since we last spoke on the Chinese FDI front? So I think this has been a, a steady decline in foreign direct investment. Well, this has been a, a steady decline in foreign direct investment um, into China. And for the first time in two or three decades, essentially foreign direct investment has turned negative. I think the figures is 82% year on year drop, which is pretty phenomenal. Mm. And again, when we talk about if we look at sort of China on a, on a graph, you know, 20 years ago, we just essentially saw an uptick. Now, obviously, there's been, you know, bounces in market for global reasons, crisis that have taken place in China and crisis have taken place across the world. But essentially, it's been on a relatively steady uptick until COVID. And then it kind of almost falls off a cliff. And what everyone was hoping is once China reopens, it's going to tick back up and it just never has. Mm. And so that's due to a multitude of reasons, geopolitical tensions, years of crackdowns and regulations mm-hmm. that have been put in place by the Chinese authorities. Obviously, we, we're very well documented underwhel- underwhelming economic performance, the property crisis and that underpins the economy. We've, we've spoken about that before. Obviously, the COVID isolation that I've spoken about, national security versus economy. So there's a multitude of reasons that's, that foreign direct investment is not flowing in. Ultimately, this comes back down to investor 
risk, mm -hmm. investor trust. Mm. Um, and I think what these figures suggest is there is an enormous lack of confidence in the China market. And it's pretty obvious, I mean, in regards to what China has to do to foster growth, to, you know, the Chinese policymakers to alleviate those those negative connotations. I mean, I would say my main frustration when I was in charge of the chamber was just read our position paper, read our sentiment survey. I mean, it's a roadmap to how you liberalize, how you open the markets. It's a it's a point by point guide. It's a industry by industry guide. And the Americans, the Europeans, you know, they said the exact same things, yeah. more or less in a in a in a country context. So, you know, the roadmap is there if China really does want to open up and reform the markets. And there has been enormous concern that it's sort of gone back on itself and the national security is trumping the economy. And the numbers suggest it when it comes to foreign direct investment. You know, we speak to multiple venture capitalists, investors, they're just not looking at China because it's just too much of a risk. Yeah, I've always thought the sort of the grey of China has been an opportunity previously. That grey now is is actually a risk. So I think China has a pretty tall order to restore confidence. But if they do want confidence to be restored, it starts with kind of very strong outreach to the to the foreign business community. Now, so I know I've been talking for a while, Sam. I will premise that in saying this isn't an exodus of foreign capital or foreign businesses going out of China. That It's not that. A drop in FDI is, is, is slightly... It's slightly confusing because it's not just GDP. When it comes to FDI numbers, they can be also quite distorted in regards to... So if we take the UK, for example, we'd look at the FDI numbers into China. They're always propped up by one or two big investments taking place. And you can see that again from the Germans, from the French. Now, obviously, those big investments are just not taking place. Doesn't mean companies are leaving China. The, the companies that are already operating there have kind of put in the FDI and you know they're doing you know strong business. And again, when we look at kind of the predictions for next year, when it when we're talking about the economy, I mean it's still going to wherever it is on that sort of three to five percent scale. You know that is still enormous growth, not to the same level that it's previous been, and, we, and we've we've spoken about that. But you know when we talk about, I mean the UK have just gone into a technical recession. China's still at five percent growth or four or five percent growth. You know there's there's still enormous opportunities there, but. You know, China's got a problem and it comes back down to, to business confidence and attracting foreign businesses, new foreign businesses to the market. And I think it, it all comes down to trust and it's in their hands. I, I think it's interesting to push on that for a bit because I think the two things are interesting. First is the question of do they even want foreign direct investment for, for the, in the long term? And I, I don't ask that knowing the answer. And, I, and the reason I ask that is because you see a lot of sort of China for China strategies becoming fully sustainable, effectively uh, cutting yourself off from any potential exposure that could be detrimental to your national security from the outside world. So that's the first sort of open-ended question. And then I think touch, touching on that as well is that the, the big thing that we see all the time in the China watcher world is I've lost count of the amount of times I was told by, uh, I've read Bloomberg and seen an analyst from uh, whatever major bank it is say, we're expecting a bounce back in China consumer confidence in this quarter here for this reason here, or we're expecting to see X, Y, Z because of Y thing here. And and that's failed to materialize pr pretty dramatically, I would say, you know, after zero COVID policy came to an end. And that is despite, as you say, that whereas three to 5% growth a year. Thank goodness, Steve, you and I aren't in the game of making economic predictions on China, because that is a thankless, <laughs> a thankless job right now. 
What I find interesting from what you've said there is I remember we produced our, our sentiment survey, our position paper, and I remember speaking to a good friend who was a reporter and he said, I mean, it's sort of the same thing every year from every single chamber. Mm. You know, you're sort of asking for market reform, opening up, you know, it's sort of the same story that we've heard for the last 20 years. And and I think that is sort of a little bit where we're getting to mm. in regards to this sort of monumental drop off in FDI. It, it's talking about confidence now is like, are you actually committed to foreign businesses being in China? Are you trying to attract new businesses? Because they have it within their scope to open up reform, liberalize markets mm. and create bigger opportunities for foreign businesses. And I guess that's, you know, that is maybe the, the crossroads slightly where we're at. I think China really does have to go a long way to reassure trust in their market. I, I completely agree. And I think also, you know, I don't have a horse in this race, particularly. My interest in it right now is predominantly through CPTPP and China's potential chances of joining that. And it seems if I was strategizing on behalf of Beijing when it came to this particular instance, I would be saying, well, now's a great time to try and get business on side so they can advocate for our case. We join the CPTPP and pressure their respective governments to allow us in. But right now, as you say, you know, you can present 20 of these annual papers. And although you might have incremental changes, if the crux of what you're putting forward isn't being accepted, then why, you know, fundamentally, why should businesses go out to bat for uh, the Chinese economy in their in their respective countries? Obviously, there's a reason they do it for profit and stuff like that. And, and, and these things are all cyclical, but it is a fascinating time at a sort of fascinating juncture, as you say, uh, for all the reasons you touched on, predominantly as well, that national security versus prosperity discussion taking place in all major economies around the world right now. But I think um, at the risk of having a 35-minute podcast on China's economy, I think we should reference the other thing you've sent me, Steve, which you were very excited about, which is this China diplomacy tracker. Do you want to give us a sort of overview of what that is and some of the results you've read from it? Yeah, so I thought this was actually a really interesting um, report in regards to China has the most offices of any country with 274, according to the Global Diplomacy Index, which was released by the, the Lowry Institute. Um, it has the biggest presence in Africa, in East Asia, the Pacific Islands, and Central America. Number two in that index is the USA. But I just think it speaks to the global ambition of, and it comes back down to our original conversation in the WTO, around China sort of creating an alternative world order mm. uh, with the, the Belt and Road Initiative, engagement into the global south. You know, they're putting serious geopolitical investment into these regions. And you can kind of see this with the amount of offices, di diplomatic offices they have. I, I do think it's interesting in terms of the sheer, as you say, the sheer number of uh, of Chinese diplomats that they are posted abroad. I know that the UK was quite proud to have opened a, a small number of uh, different diplomatic outposts over the last couple of years. But I, I think we're, we're obviously a smaller country too, but it's, it's always good to see where you measure against those sort of things. That being said, I think we should crack on with our main sort of chunk of the show today, which is an interview with Sam Goodman from the China Strategic Risk Institute. But before we get into that, I want to play a clip from a committee session on Monday with a guy called Ed Conway. Ed Conway is a Sky presenter, uh, and he has recently published a really influential book. You see it referenced all the time in, in parliamentary records on critical minerals which we'll link in, in the description below. But this clip basically is an anecdote from that book that Ed's telling a bunch of MPs and, and politicians about in, in terms of sort of supply chain weaknesses and exposure. So as you, I mean, as you probably know, I've written a book recently 
um, which is kind of all about this, and it's partly about the history, but it's partly about the kind of the present day. One of the the anecdotes in that book is, you know, there was a period in the, at the outbreak of the First World War where Britain suddenly ran very short of, of binoculars. Um, it was known as the, the glass famine. Uh, and binoculars, of course, are incredibly important during the, uh, the First World War because you needed to be able to see where you were actually shooting or aiming your, your weaponry. Um, but we had gone from having an enormous glass production in the kind of 19th century, in the early part of the 19th century, in the, in the 18th century, uh, to being a world leader of glass production, to having no glass, very little glass production, and relying on Germany for 60% of our binoculars. So the war com- com- you know, begins, and suddenly we don't have binoculars. There's, there's, a, there's a nationwide kind of crisis. People are, there's appeals, and people are being asked to, start to send in binoculars. Uh, the opera glasses, the, the you know, binoculars they use at the races, uh, to, to the troops going to the trenches. And the reason I mention this is that right now, so back then our reliance on Germany for these bits of silicon technology, I suppose you might say, of, of, the, of 1914, um, back then our reliance on Germany was about 60%. Right now our reliance uh, on China for certain ingredients when it comes to the energy transition and indeed for, for other technology is far, far greater. For rare earths, it's in the kind of high 90s percent. For, silicon, uh, for, for uh, solar panels, rather, it's up in that kind of order as well. Um, for the ingredients that go into many of our wind turbines, it's very high as well. And the, the kind of overarching, I think, lesson from that is that Britain often kind of, and I think this has certainly happened back in the kind of the early 20th century, we often lean quite quickly into laissez-faire policies. And back then, the consensus, you know, the conventional wisdom at the turn of the 20th century was, this is fantastic. We may not have much of a glass industry anymore, but we are getting glass, optical glass, we're getting binoculars cheaper than ever before from Zeiss. And that's fantastic until suddenly it's not. So we're joined today by Sam Goodman, who works at the China Strategic Risk Institute. Sam, I guess to kick us off, could you explain a bit about your background experience and also what the CSRI does? Sure. Um, so I'm the Senior Policy Director at the China Strategic Risks Institute. Um, we're a new China-specific think tank in the UK, the first of its kind. We were founded last year and we look at the UK-China relationship through the lens of risk. And so mainly strategic risk, looking at supply chain risk, um, but also political risk, geopolitical risk, um, obviously human rights risks that are often well established in some of the debates around mm. China. Um, so that's sort of a a flavor of what we do. How do you define risk in that sense? Because one of the conversations that you and I have had before, as we've been kicking about in this space, is some politicians and some businesses clearly have a uh, much looser definition of risk than others do. So where do you guys tend to work on that basis? Yeah, I mean, I I think we would look at the appetite for risk and whether uh, businesses or governments have mechanisms in place to mitigate those risks. We're not saying that the whole relationship is so risky that you shouldn't engage. We're saying if you are going to engage, what are you engaging mm. on? What are the risks that you're considering? And how are you planning on mitigating those risks? And in some cases, you know, you can't mitigate those risks. So therefore, do you change your calculus about that particular thread of engagement? Or do you continue? I think it, it's trying to figure out really about um, the parts of the relationship really where there are obviously security risks, there might be economic risks for the UK, but also trying to identify those opportunities as well. I think sometimes 
the debate we have around de-risking is very negative. It's all about you know alarm and, and being risk you know risk averse. While also there are clearly opportunities at home, you know, whether it comes to friendshoring or investing in sort of future technologies, but also clearly there are opportunities for engagement in a sensible, pragmatic manner with clearly defined red lines. Where do we define those red lines? I mean, this is a common conversation I've had with Sam, but also with businesses in regards to, we talk about due diligence, we talk about risk, and people say, look, we want to be compliant. We don't want to put our company at risk, put ourselves at risk, but what are these red lines and who are they defined by? Are they defined by the Chinese side? Are they defined by the British side? And how do we make sure that we're compliant? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think first of all, you know, the government needs to do a better job of engaging with business and being clear about where the red lines are when it comes to national security, when it comes to, you know, looking at our supply chains, ensuring there isn't forced labor, for example, from Xinjiang and goods that we're importing into this country. At the moment, the Conservative government's approach has been to leave it to business to lead the way. I might argue, or one might argue, that actually the government should be taking a more proactive approach and being very clear about where those red lines are, particularly if a, if, if a UK business, for example, is using a supplier in China and they can't get basic information to prove that their goods aren't being made with forced labor, then perhaps that is a red line that's been crossed there. And uh, that business either needs to find a new supplier that can provide that information or they need to consider ex- exiting that, that particular field. I think that's a particularly reasonable example that you could make that most people in the British public would agree with. So obviously, Western governments are just increasingly on guard of Chinese intervention, incursions into the market. And again, everything now is being defined by national security. The government says, look, we've, we've made that very, very clear. What, what is the red lines? But again, I would argue that it's still so vague. When, when the wider public are now questioning is the, the sale of curries a national security risk? I mean, are, are we now just lumping everything into, actually, we don't want to deal with countries like China? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, obviously the sale of curries isn't a national security risk, but I do think there's a legitimate debate to be had about anything that touches, you know, technology, given the way that society is now developing, whereby everything is integrated through technology where if a lot of that technology is coming from China or Chinese companies that, by the way, are legally compelled to work hand in glove with the state through the PRC's intelligence law. Um, there's a reasonable debate to be had about whether we should be integrating that technology into our society or in the case of, of green supply chains, whether we want to decarbonize our economy to a, an extent where we become heavily reliant on China for those very resources that we need, whether those are electric vehicles or wind turbines or solar panels. Um, but I, I, I think at the moment we're not really having that debate. Obviously, the government has come forward and clarified the areas where it thinks investment touches on national security. You have the national investment screening mechanism. It isn't backdated. You know, we sold off a lot of assets in this country in the gold in the so-called golden era. There's no debate about how we get those assets back under public control or you know, diversify control. We're just sort of starting with a blank slate from when the act comes into force and we'll say from now on. It's still very arbitrary, though, who defines national security. It's up to the Secretary of State. So, again, there isn't a lot of transparency. There clearly isn't a lot of debate in Parliament about it either, other than, I think, a few backbench MPs on both sides of the House and and some people in the House of Lords as well. David Alton, obviously, shout out to him. Um, But, I mean, that's kind of the limit. Yeah, I I find the... um... 
the economic security debate fascinating because often it feels like if even when it does get escalated, there's a decision made and then we the, the political attention turns away. But just this week you have the the company, the venture group that's that's taken over the Newport Wafer Fab site saying, We are still waiting for the government to move on this. It's now been multiple years since the original purchase by Nexperia, the Chinese link company, then then the government stepped in to say actually that can't go ahead reverse that out. They brought in a new buyer who's been ticked off, but th- th- they're staying now, that that buyer, we are we are struggling to get engagement from government and people's jobs are at stake. So do, do you find then when you're talking about risk that not only is the government slow in spelling out where the red lines are, but they're actually not engaging beyond those red lines with the people and the organizations involved in this space properly? And there's certainly the sense that we get. I mean, it goes to the point about the sort of laissez-faire, hands-off approach this government is taking when it comes to directing businesses around risk, that actually you probably need a government that's more hands-on, that's willing to intervene in the market where where it's appropriate, and also offering clear signalling to businesses. And fundamentally, I just think that, to be quite frank, the current government doesn't want to do that for one reason or another. I want to I want to come back around to what a potential Labour government could look like on that because clearly some of the stuff you're you're saying there implies that sort of securonomics and that stuff that's a Labour concept of foreign domestic international trade policy tied together could be an answer to that but but first of all one of the areas where I've followed your work for a number of years now is around ESG and your views on ESG and one of the things we've discussed previously is that there's clearly a lot of attention paid to the E part of ESG the environmental side when it comes to China but very little on the social or governance side. And arguably, when you have companies that are saying, we now have a China headquarter, or, or we, we're headquartered in London, but we have a China department that can't speak to our headquarters here in London, that causes risk issues. Do you think that ESG is being defined properly in, in this bilateral when it comes to British businesses with a Chinese uh, footprint? No, of course not. And actually, I've, I've written for CSRI on this very point that actually, if you want to invest through the lens of ESG, then China is pretty much uninvestable. And I, I make that case also for a lot of green products as well, given the fact that many Chinese state-owned enterprises uh, actually pollute more in a year than the whole of the UK. So how can you credibly say that investment in some of these companies can be green? It just can't. As for the S, I mean, obviously, forced labour not just in Xinjiang, but through the the labour transfer programmes that have been, you know, covered quite widely in the UK media shows that there are real social issues of investing in some of these companies in China. And as for the governance structure, I mean, they have communist party cells. Increasingly, the Chinese government is now centralising the economy under the party apparatus. Um, They don't have basic governance structures. And you've seen the crackdown in the tech sector, the education sector, you're now seeing it in the financial sector. So you really have to ask whether there are good governance grounds as well for investing in China. And and I guess, you know, there probably are. That doesn't mean that companies shouldn't invest in China. I think those that have a higher appetite for risk and don't have public money, you know, my money, your money, anyone else's pension money in, okay, that's up to them. But I do think if you're carrying some public money, um, you should be careful, basically, particularly if you you know, sort of speak quite highly of ESG and you sort of couch a lot of your investment under that strategy. What would you say to a business that has said, come out and said, look, we have fully audited our supply chain. We don't have forced labor in it. And we, you know, we've got products coming from, from Xinjiang. What would you say to that? Because I've heard that from many Western businesses, we have fully audited our supply chain and we, we can't say categorically, but we, we don't have forced labor in our supply chain. 
Well, I mean, I, I'd be very interested <laughs> to see the audit, to be honest. I mean, but if you can't say categorically, it depends where you put the burden of proof, the threshold of proof. If the threshold of proof has to be categorically, you have to prove that as the Uyghur Forced Labour Prevention Act requires, then you're probably not going to meet that threshold. Now, we get into a debate about whether for economic reasons we should lower the threshold and say, actually, does it really matter? If there's forced labour, even the thoughts of forced labour in the supply chain, because we need those goods. And I guess, you know, in, in some ways, it, it's up to the individual consumers to decide that. But you think that given the history of this country, that people would be quite exercised about having goods that haven't been signed off necessarily. I'd also point out um, on this topic that a lot of the big four who are in China, who've done a lot of the auditing over the last few years, have got into a lot of trouble recently about some of the auditing reports they've published. So there is a question about the auditors that you're using. And, you know, obviously there are huge issues rife in China's auditing industry anyway. So, I mean, I just don't know, fundamentally. I think I, I completely understand from a business perspective how difficult it is if government is moving the red line all the time. Uh, if you're being asked to provide information that you can't provide or you think you've provided, and then the line gets moved. But I also think there needs to be a perspective from these companies in China, operating in China about the UK public and the general appetite in this country. And it may be a case where I suppose politics really is sort of pressing on trade. I think if I can jump onto the next topic, but which is tied to a point you just made there, Sam, about the trade-off between importing goods that could be slave labor made and that the benefit, sort of quote-unquote benefits to the, the British consumer or whatever, where the trade-offs are from an economic point of view. The CSRI has published a paper looking at polysilicon and solar panels. As listeners will, will know, solar panels, a lot of them come from China and they, they use this really critical little sort of mineral uh, substance called polysilicon, lots of which comes from Xinjiang. And we're going to need that in our efforts to go green in the UK, basically, our government mandated efforts to go green as part of it. And CSRI publishes paper exposing the sort of risks that are inherent in this supply chain right now from two or three Chinese companies too. And there's been lots of further academic research, some amazing stuff from Sheffield um, and, and various other activists have raised it. But when you're speaking to policymakers, Sam, how do you tend to uh, balance that? How do you portray to them that we cannot fully go green if it costs us the sort of moral right, I guess, in a way, of, of importing slave-linked goods? Yeah, I mean, look, I, th I think there are trade-offs and the solar industry is a perfect example of those trade-offs. I mean, you, you could say, thankfully, that solar is actually not going to be a huge amount of the mix that we're going to need to go green just because so there isn't a huge amount of sun in this country and very limited amount a couple of months a year. But it's still going to be part of that mix. You know, the government has said that they want to increase solar panels in this country by one fifth by 2035. And it's very clear that to get to that figure and, and incorporate solar, you're going to be getting solar panels probably made or some contents made from Xinjiang. And that's a big trade off. Um, I think the government needs to be honest with the public about that, particularly those who are concerned about human rights, um, and also put stop gaps in place. I mean, that report says that there should be more friendshoring, there should be looking for alternatives in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, but the problem is, of course, that China has a chokehold in that sector, and, it, and it's very hard to see with the amount of demand that we would need for solar, not just us, but the EU, you know, the US, all of the countries that are trying to decarbonize right now, where you get those solar panels from. Um, ideally, I mean, 
my big message my big message i think is really trying to learn the lessons of what's happened in the solar industry particularly when it comes to wind because i think wind is going to be the big gambit for the uk uh, thankfully you know there are danish producers there are german producers who lead in the market but some of them are running into financial difficulties there was a story i think you might have read a couple of weeks ago about a danish company that's just cut loads of staff it's a wind turbine producer uh, a lot of the projects in the Inflation Reduction Act and wind have run into trouble just because of cost. And so it's not hard to foresee a scenario in a few years where some of these companies run into trouble and Chinese companies end up getting market share. And then you basically have a repeat of what you've had with solar, but with wind. And the ramifications for the UK will be even bigger. You know, we've spoken about risk a lot through the prism of human rights and forced labor and supply chains, but clearly uh, risk goes beyond that. And one of the risks that we see politicians talking about now, and they term it a variety of different ways, but we'll use the sort of, sort of tabloid headline is that a flood of Chinese EV vehicles invading the UK market. In terms of the risks there, there's obviously some that are security lens, which is the ones we've seen raised about being able to spot where ministers are moving, if they had a, a Chinese EV car, et cetera, et cetera. But some of the stuff you've spoken about before, Sam, has more to do with the uh, breakdown of the industry in the UK and what that could mean for job losses for the UK market and stuff like that too. So if you were approaching a government right now, and or let's say the British government for the sake of clarity, and trying to help them think about the risk of the Chinese EVs entering the UK market, what sort of stuff would the CSRI or you be saying to them to sort of get their attention on this issue properly? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we've been very good at doing in our research is sort of stress testing a number of very credible scenarios that could happen uh, where the government could come under pressure. So I think in this case, one of the areas we're looking at is, you know, what would it take for some of these big European automakers to run into financial trouble? Uh, you know, in the case of Volkswagen, I think you know something like 40% of their profits come from China. If the Chinese government decided to react to something that Europe has done by reducing uh, German automotive market share in China, while at the same time exporting excess capacity that is built up in its own economy to Europe, you know, some people think it could be as high as 30% for some of these EV factories. Uh, you know, what would that what would the impact be on a, on a Volkswagen? I mean, it could be significant and it could have a chain reaction for the whole of the car industry you know it's worth noting that we don't have national champions in this country we sold off our car industry including by the way lotus to geely which is a chinese automotive manufacturer um and again you know we don't have the battery production either the only uh, battery uh, factory gigawatt factory we're creating up in the northeast is, is actually a chinese company again so the appetite for the government to intervene in the sector, given that you have a Chinese automotive company that already owns one of the leading British automotive car manufacturers, and you have the only gigawatt factory being produced by a Chinese company, will be limited. But the knock-on effect, because a lot of these British automotive companies are owned by European automotive companies, if any of them run into trouble, I mean, it could be quite big. But there are trade-offs, as you say. I mean, the question is, how fast do you want to phase out the combustion engine? If you don't take the public along with you and signpost the risks early on, you just try and push for fast adoption with cheap Chinese EVs, do you lose the public? If you lose the public and there's a backlash, what happens to your targets? Do they get delayed? Probably. So the best way to stop that from happening is actually having the conversation now, working on the mix, figuring out where the supply is. You know, Can you get 
EVs from America, you know, Teslas, you know, what are the European automotive companies doing for production in Europe? Is there a subsidy program that Europe's going to produce? Are we looking at a buy European, similar to the Inflation Reduction Act? Maybe not. But at least having these conversations now, rather than the alternative, which would just be a big problem in a couple of years' time, and everyone sat there scratching their heads saying, well, how did this happen? And that's basically what happened with Huawei with 5G. It's what happened with Hikvision cameras. It's why you have these Hikvision cameras everywhere, like, like I think, asbestos in our, in our supermarkets. And, you know, it could easily happen again with Chinese EVs where we all wake up and everyone's driving a Chinese EV. And you've got people like our good friend Charlie Parton saying there are huge national security risks here. So, Sam, we've, we've sort of set out the landscape there as it currently is. I think looking forward to the end of the year, there's a very good chance that we will have a different government in, in power, probably a Labour government. With majority, uh, who knows how much that could be. Uh, I wondered if there was a CSRI wish list of things that a future government, future Labour government potentially, could do in the risk space when it comes to the bilateral. What would that What would that wish list, that little gift list, just in time for Christmas, look like? Yeah, well, I, I don't want to speak for, for my colleagues. We might have to call it the Sam CSRI wish list. In case <laughs> Perfect. Anybody takes issue with some of my suggestions. But I'm sure they'd all agree. I'm going to say that right now. Um, but essentially, I think, look, making securonomics real, you know, building out a securonomics unit in the Treasury, having it linked up with the Department for Business and Trade, doing sectoral analysis, really getting in the weeds of the supply chain weaknesses. I think you have to have some backward facing look at national investment screening and trying to figure out what happened in the golden era, particularly investment in critical infrastructure and look at some of those things. I know New Zealand's national security investment screening has that mechanism. We don't for some reason. There's a big chunk of work that needs to be done on university research partnerships. I'm probably not, you know, the authority to speak on that. I'm sure there are people who will come on the show who can speak at length about that. But I think Canada has just done a huge overhaul of their university's relationships with Chinese research institutes that are linked to the People's Liberation Army. And I think, you know, we could do something similar in the UK and I think it would be an easy win. Um, I think the stuff that can be done broadly about coordinating our, our response to the Belt and Road um, with partners. At the moment, it's rhetoric, and I think we need to have a development aid strategy that actually looks at that, and we need to take ownership of the geographic piece of that as well. I think what the Australians did that was unpopular at the time but has been very effective is that they decided to focus their efforts on combating the Belt and Road in the Pacific, and they actually cut back their footprint geographically elsewhere. Um it wouldn't be popular, but I do think if, if we are going to focus on an alternative to the Belt and Road, we need to pick a, a geographic region and then we need to deepen those relationships and say, you know, for historic reasons, it probably makes sense for us to be looking at South Africa, the region, uh, potentially East Africa as well, maybe parts of the Middle East, and then I guess part, you know, maybe the Balkans as well. But we need to think through what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, there's a lot of national security stuff that can be done as well around government. Um, as people know, I'm, I'm no fan of diplomats turning lobbyists for foreign governments or former ministers for that matter. And I think you should tighten the ACABA rules around that. Um, transparency as well, bring the House of Lords register in line with the House of Commons. That's a really, really easy fix. Uh, at the moment, Lords do not have to declare the same amount of work, paid work as MPs. And so that would be an easy way to deal with transparency. Obviously, 
you know, you need to invest in your China capabilities. I'm sure that's something that would be very welcomed on this. Hell podcast. yeah, that's our that's our mission. Um, <laughs> look, I mean, 200,000 200, Hong Kongers have come here in the last three or four years. Many of them have the experience of dealing with the Chinese Communist Party, amazing language skills, very bright, very talented. They currently cannot work in the civil service or in parliament for that matter. Uh, they have huge expertise that we could take advantage of. And I think there must be a mechanism for getting some of the brightest of these people that have come over here and really taking advantage of their experience and their expertise. Uh, I have no doubt in 20 years' time we will have some of the best China expertise in this country in the whole of Europe. But it's how do we speed up that process now for the challenges that we're dealing with. And so I really think leaning on this diaspora community would be a really good start. Um, so I think those are those are some of a, a few things. I'm sure there's loads that I've missed. Um, so look, let's round out this um, this discussion with a reference back to one of the first things you said, Sam, which is that the UK-China relationship right now clearly quite fraught and, and there's a lot of talk about the risk involved in it. But you also said there are positive areas for engagement. Um, I wondered if you could give a, a view as to what some of those in, in your view could be. I think what the Prime Minister is trying to do with AI, if you can get a set of globally accepted regulations on AI, that would be very beneficial to the UK, which is obviously the third largest developer of this new technology. I think it's fair to say that the CCP is as worried about AI as, as anybody, particularly what it might do to the Great Firewall. So there, there's, there's a reason to think that they might want to you know, engage with, you know, in good faith, these regulations because of their own concerns. I think in other areas around you know, geopolitical security, we need China as a partner. I think you look at what's going on in the Red Sea right now. China should be doing more to keep sea lanes open. They have a military a PLA base in Djibouti that could be doing that. They have leverage over Iran. A lot of their shipping containers, some of whom have gone through the Red Sea, but some have also been diverted as well around Africa. It's costing them a lot of money. So really, they could be a partner in trying to bring some stability and keeping shipping lanes open. Similar question when it comes to North Korea as well. If the status quo is going to be changed around reunification in Korea, then China is always going to be needed as a voice in the room to moderate the regime there. And it is an opportunity for us to talk about uh, the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. And I think as the Americans have shown in their experience, uh, the Jake Sullivan, Wang Yi meetings around fentanyl, if you can talk to them about some of these geopolitical issues where we have shared interests, but not necessarily economic, direct economic interests, then you know you can start to talk about some of these other bigger issues as well, and so there are there is room here, I think. But I think where people trip up is that they use the boilerplate of oh, we'll just incorporate on the climate, but they won't be specific about what it is that they want to cooperate on. And I think with a lot of policymakers, you have to you know, the devil's in the detail really when it comes to cooperation. Otherwise, they're not they're not really being serious. I think. And then in terms of sort of economic opportunities here, look, I mean. We deindustrialized at a faster rate from 1995 to 2010 than any other country in Europe. And our industrial base really has withered and decayed in many ways. And I do think that that has been a contributing factor. If you look at the Brexit vote, the rise of populism, if there are opportunities, and there won't be loads of opportunities, but there are some opportunities to bring back good value paying jobs in manufacturing for things that we need at home that we can't, you know, if there's a crisis, we're not going to be able to get them from the other side of the world or in emerging technology and sectors that are just starting up. I think we should do it. I think the government should be, you know, a golden share investor and they should put their money out there and we should go for it. 
Um, I'm not saying that the economy, 30% of the economy is suddenly going to be manufacturing. But I think if we get it to a level of like 15, maybe 18, 19%, we would be in a far better shape economically and politically. And I think you could marry up the de-risking debate with the, the green investment debate, with the securonomics debate. You could marry it up with lots of things. And so there are positives here. And I think there's a positive story to tell. It can't just always be sort of fear-mongering around risk. I think that's absolutely correct. And um, Jeremy Hunt, if you're listening, feel free to invest a golden share into Beijing to Britain Industries. Uh, We would not say no, and we will be transparent too. Sam, thank you so much for joining us. That has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, Looking forward to speaking to you again soon. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. So brilliant, Sam. I thought that was a genuinely fascinating interview from Sam. He eruditely argued the case of positioning China in a, a, a lens of risk. Now, I personally think if you, once you once you start to position China in a lens of risk, it, it automatically frames China in the negative. But I'm really glad at the end he sort of touched upon some of the opportunities. But what, what, what's your thoughts? It's funny because I actually think that both of you sing from the same hymn sheet in that you that there's some people that dismiss the UK-China bilateral relationship with China as basically saying all the risks are overhyped or overblown. And on the flip side, there are people who say, you know, everything is a, is a massive, substantial risk. You know, every single potential trade or engagement has an inherent risk attached to it. And clearly, as with almost everything in life, it's somewhere in the middle. And I think that um, where you guys sit on that is you have a very similar assessment that there are clearly inherent risks. It's just about where your threshold for, for the risk is. And I think that's where CSRI is doing some really good work in the wider, you know, Westminster space. I think as Sam would be the first to say, they're not just here to point and shout this is a disaster or this is a huge mistake, but actually to provide quite sensible policy recommendations. I, I attended the launch of one of their papers in Parliament and had a good political turnout. They had actionable recommendations that were in a format that actually, if you're a backbench MP, you can take away, learn and, and, and push for quite hard. So that's that's in many ways is a, is a, is a, is a very good thing. I, I think, though, to add in a very unorthodox risk that we didn't just touch in our conversation because it wasn't quite appropriate is actually a strange risk where some of the more extreme parts of the of the British establishment are starting to dovetail with some of the more extreme Chinese Communist Party uh, talking points. And that is by trying to deteriorate confidence in international institutions. Um, and, and what I'm referring to here is former uh, shortest serving prime minister in British history, Liz Truss, going to America last week and basically using her speech at a conference, a conservative conference to attack the so-called deep state and institutions, uh, anything she could basically think of that led to her downfall in the UK and undermine, um, which which are these things, in my opinion, which are pillars of democracy, which actually, again, is similar to some of the sort of stated aims of propaganda units in, in hostile countries. So not not quite fitting into that that definition of risk. It's quite an unorthodox one, but I do wonder how we, as a democratic society, push back on that sort of stuff. Actually, I don't want to push you into provocative place by asking you for anything that's too provocative on on top of that, Steve. But what do you have, do you have any views on that? Do you think? Well, Sam, I mean, Liz Trust is the leader of Popcom, which yeah. is populist conservatism. So, I think um... she must know. <laughs> She, <laughs> no, I mean, so I think Liz Truss certainly has her viewpoint. I mean, the overarching kind of conversation that I've had with most people this week has been 
I couldn't think of a less appropriate leader for a popular conservative movement than Liz Trust. There you go. Well, Steve, there's always another position to take on for you. I'm happy if you wear that hat too. <laughs> um, Steve, great to chat. I'm looking forward to speaking to you next week.